0: Done. Thank you, thank you. Right, um, just listening to the musicians leading us in worship, you know, it's not it's not an easy thing to do, to lead a congregation to sing the praises of God and and not be the show. And I just want to thank the musicians for actually leading us as a congregation to sing the praises of God. So. Um, Let's give them a hand, thanksgiving, really amazing. Right, well, I have the privilege to speak to you on the topic of glorification. I'm so excited to be back here at the IMPACT Conference, I thoroughly enjoyed being here with you last year and in previous conferences enjoyed sitting where you're sitting now, being blessed by the Word of God. Now last year, as you, those of you who came, you will remember that we had Matt, was one of the key speakers, as well as Phil and myself, and uh, Matt was the man of conviction, spoke on that topic, and Phil was the horse breeder of courage, that's what his name means, and I was the character between these two men. But this year, the organizers really messed up the topic allocation, because Matt as you know, he's speaking on sanctification, earning him my designated nickname for the weekend, St. Matthew. I know there's a church here in Napier, I, I googled it, called St. Matthew's. You won't lose Matt to that, but you can call him St. Matt. But that title would also have, obviously, why saying they messed it up, that title should actually have been Nick's. And we would have had our very own St. Nicholas here. Um, I don't know what kind of gifts he would have brought, but that would have been nice. But with Matt, uh, uh, with Nick, pardon me, teaching on justification, I thought he also needs his own very personal nickname, so we'll call him High um, Chief Justice Cleavely from now on. Um, and this, again, obviously, sadly leaves me with a much-covered title of the glorified conference speaker. Um, and you might be laughing, but it's actually true, because Riverbend just cannot get this right (laughs) they just cannot get the international speakers back so what do you you are left with us glorified conference speakers but i will be kind to Riverbend. we are extremely grateful won't ridicule them um, all the organizers because these names are actually true matt actually said that we're all saints true And you join in that title, you can all call one another Saint whoever, Saint Mary and Saint Joseph, and just don't go too far in your reverence for one another. Matt truly is a saint, though, a man saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and God is sanctifying him as he's sanctifying you. And one day, we will all stand, the Word of God says, we will all be chief justices. We will stand and we will judge the world. Can you imagine that? that we will be partakers in the judgment of God, even judging angels. So even that title is is true. And our glorification is as sure as the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we will all be glorified as well. Maybe not all glorified conference speakers, but that for another day. But to stand here with, with you and before you this afternoon truly is a privilege. Especially in light of the fact that I stand with the Word of God open, and with my heart truly, truly blessed by the knowledge that what I'm going to speak about is not just a fairy tale. Um, it's not in my notes, so it's one of those things that will either, well, let me just tell you, my, my heart is heavy, because uh, this morning I got a text from a very good friend of mine, and... Uh, Many of you have gone through this in your own lives and have family members. He's been struggling with some pain that the doctors just cannot figure out what it is. And he said the doctors want to do a bone marrow biopsy. He probably has cancer. And what do you, how do you counsel such a man that you love as a brother and a dear friend? What do you say in a text message? Well, I say to him that he's glorified body. He's prepared for him, whether it is now, whether it's 10 years from now, 30 years, 40 years. But the reality of the fact that we will one day be in the presence of God with a body that can relate to him without sin, without pain, without suffering, is the very hope that I wanted to share with my friend. So today, like Paul, I want to make sure that I leave with you, like Nick also mentioned this verse, decided to know nothing among you except the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because He is our hope. He is our glorification. Because He is the glorious and wonderful Lord in whom we rest. So I pray that you will go home after this conference listening to all the, mas- the messages from Matt and-, and Nick and the seminar speakers. And I hope you will go home saying that I beheld the glory of the Lord. And I'm being transformed by the power of God's Holy Spirit into the image of my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That glorious King. And that we will grow from glory to glory. So I want to take you with, uh, with me in a journey so that we can see with unveiled faces the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because I cannot talk about our glorification without starting with Him He is the glorious King. Because let me tell you, there is nothing that will be of more benefit to your soul than to see and to understand the glory of the Son of God and then to marvel at the spectacular reality that you are in union with Christ and will be for all eternity in a body without sin. That you can relate to this holy and perfect God without any worry, without any shame, without any tears. And you would love Him completely. And you have all eternity to get to know the infinite love and grace and character and nature of our Lord Jesus Christ in your glorified body. So the title of this first message, therefore, is the glory of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is glory? I guess we all need to start with some definition. The word glory in the Old Testament usage relates to weight or heaviness. And no, I will not go there because that would be running into a minefield. And I want you all just to like me after the conference. Now let's go there anyway. We have a bathroom scale. Do you have one in your house? Yeah, we all do. Now, our bathroom scale is pretty impressive. It has this cunning ability to tell me that I am overweight. Yours don't do that, but mine does. It, it gives me a BMI as well, whatever that means. Now hear this. If the definition of glory is weight if you ever look down you see those numbers climb on your scale after your annual christmas dinner just confidently look at that instrument of food news a good news look him in the face and say i am overly glorious <laughs> because when you think of weight it is glory In the way in which the Old Testament describes it, it is when you look at God, when you see God, when you have have God's manifestation of His nature and His character, it is weighty. It is heavy. It is something that we cannot hold, cannot comprehend. And yet, He shows that to us. He manifests it to us in in a visible way so that we can go and say, how glorious, how wonderful. So the concept of glory refers to something that has weight to it, having an abundance of wealth and honor and splendor. When God says in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. What He's saying is this. He says, my weight, my honor, my splendor are far beyond any of the idols that man can make. They're lightweight. They have no weight in comparison to God who is all-weighty in His glory. He does not share His glory with lightweight idols. Now, I've always read that verse and I thought, well, God never shares His glory with anyone. But glorification tells us that He will share His glory with His people. Because we are in Him. In Him. The sharing of glory refers here to obviously as idols, things that we want to worship and think, well, that's weighty, that's glorious, that's splendor. And we make up gods for ourselves and none of them can compare to God. Therefore, God says, they, he does not share his glory with them. In First Chronicles, where David prays, we read this in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Verse 11 to 12, he says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. So what does David say? He says, I know you, God, you are the exalted one. You are all majestic. You You are above the heavens. And then verse 12 says, both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. So the glory of God is visible in him as he reveals himself to us. And it is also visible there where God bestows his glory or a glory on others. His glory fills the entire creation. Psalm 19. You look up in the sky, what do you see? It proclaims the glory of God. His glory is seen in the nations according to Psalm 97. But most evidently, God's glory, His glory is seen and experienced in the midst of His covenant people, Old Testament. God's glory is that visible and active presence of Him that is visible. You can see it. He shows it to us. In the Old Testament, it was seen in a cloud. It was seen in the tabernacle. It was seen in the Ark of the Covenant. In the New Testament, who can tell me, where do we see the glory of God? In Christ. In Christ. And in His church. Because in Christ, the church who is in Christ, justified, sanctified, will also be glorified in Christ. St. Clair Ferguson, whom we've been quoting a lot lately, (laughs) he so aptly explains what the glory of God means. He says, the glory of God is the outward expression or manifestation of God's attributes and perfection. It's almost like the kaleidoscopic burst of the colors of the magnificence of God's character. I like that definition. Because when you, when you see the glory of God, it is, it is something about His character and His nature that is now visible. So that you can look at it and think, what a glorious God. How worthy He is of worship. In other words, it is, it is that which we can see, even though right now we can only see it by faith. Or that which can be perceived about God and explained about God. Even if what is outwardly described um, or explained is infinitely more than what it is. How many of you have grasped the Trinity? How many of you have grasped the love of God? How many of you have a, have a good handle of, of, of God's mercy towards sinners? But if I ask the question, do you know anything about God's love? You would say, yes, I do. Do you know anything about God's holiness? Yes, you do. About the Trinity, the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I hope you know something about that. That is a manifestation of the true nature of God, visible, so that you and I can take it and use it to worship Him. And when we use the word or the verb to glorify in relation to our worship of God, it refers to us then taking that which we've seen about God And now we bestow honor and praise and glory and admiration to God. This does not mean, and we need to say this, this does not mean that we are adding something to God which wasn't His to start with. We know that we cannot do that. God already possesses honor and glory and power and strength as we read in the Holy Scriptures. But us seeing his glory, take that glory, take the manifestation of his character. We, we love it and we take it and we bestow it upon him in our worship. We take it and we say, how glorious are you, Lord? How, how magnificent are you? How majestic are you? We see God revealed in his word and we see God revealing himself in his actions. And then we respond to that as we see him. And we hear Him in His Word, in His actions, and we bring it to Him in worship. as what we have done. Every time we open His Word, read it, every time we sing His praises, every time we pray. Brothers and sisters, we know God is perfect. We know that God is holy. We know that God is powerful. He's wise. he's, He's magnificent. We know this. Why? Or how do we know this? Because God decided to reveal that to us. And as He reveals it, we see it. And what do we see? Glory. We see the glory of God. We see what glory. Now, I love photography. I should rather say I like taking photos. Sounds better. But we all love sunsets, don't we? don't love a sunset, there's something desperately wrong with you, I love sunsets, you go out, you stand there, and you look at the sun, and as the sun sets, my son, when he was small, uh, we were at Guernsey, I think, yeah, in Guernsey, on the island of Guernsey, and we went to the uh, to little hill, and overlooked the Atlantic Ocean, and, and the sun was setting, and, and I said to Stephen, my son, I said, so, so where do you think the sun is going? He said, "Oh, he's going to a sunbed. (laughs) Probably true. So he was sitting in the sunbed. But do you know that that the sun as it is, it comes to us with light that takes eight minutes to travel to the earth before you can see it. This star that produces the light that we see is 151 kilometers away from us. The only vehicle that can make it is a Toyota Land Cruiser. But we write poetry about the sun, don't we? We stand there, and we look at the sunset, and, and we go, ooh, and ah, and, and just the colors do something to us. Where we live at the moment, we have a beautiful view of, of the sun setting in the west, and you know we would be watching something on tele, or we would be, be eating dinner or whatever, and suddenly the whole room is changed, the colors are changing, and all of us are out there with our cell phones. So if you go and look through our photos, you just see sunset, 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 sunset. Because we love to see it. But what do we see? We see a manifestation, a visible manifestation of the nature of the sun. The sun that gives warmth. The sun that gives light. The sun itself is so bright that we can't look directly into it, can we? And yet it is essential for life. So, so in it is a majesty that is visible. And we say, what glory. What a glorious sunset. So when we look at God and we refer to the glory of God, it is that which we see of God that He has chosen to reveal to us. So with that said, true to John MacArthur's introductions, that was my introduction. In this session, what I want to do, I want to set out a little roadmap for you. In this session, I want us to look at the glory of Christ. Because we cannot talk about our glorification unless we talk about the glory of our Savior. And then in my next session, Lord willing, I will focus on how our union with Christ produces a glory in us as believers that will start in this life through sanctification, but will be completed in the life to come. So let's look at our Savior, Jesus Christ. This should excite you. When we look at Christ Jesus and how He's being revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures, the story of Jesus begins without a beginning, because He is eternally the Son of God. And what we will see is, we will see, as we look at the glory of Christ, we will see that there's something remarkably interesting about His glory. We will also see there's something expected in His incarnation relating to His glory. And then we will see there's something completely so surprising about His glory in His incarnation. So those are three of the things I just quickly want to go through. First of all, it is interesting. The glory of Christ Jesus is interesting because it takes us to a time before this world was created. Jesus Christ was already glorious because He is God. Then it is expected because of what we know of Christ Jesus... Being the incarnate son, he is son, man, and he is son, divine. And him in this, in, this, in this person with the nature of man and the nature of man, and yet being God 100% and 100% man, we should expect then to see glimpses of a glory that is beyond the glory that you and I have. And we see that in the Gospels. What are miracles? Isn't it an expression of the glory, of the divinity of Christ in action, visibly, so that believers can actually believe, For sinners? But it's also surprising. Because with Jesus' incarnation, and His humiliation, and His death, we find in it a manifestation of God's glory that we should not expect. How is it even possible for the thrice holy God, To take on flesh and die. The most... Whatever the opposite of not glory is. Or glory is the opposite of... What is it that death itself is not glorious, is it? It's ugly. And furthermore, in doing so, while Jesus gives himself in death, he takes that, that state of humility, and he turns it around... To even make death the means through which He will manifest the glory of His Father. Through which the Father will look upon the Son and say, I have now glorified you. That is quite unexpected. Surprising. So let's start with the interesting part. And for that, obviously, we need to go back to where there was no time. There was no heaven, no earth. Just God who is. If we would have been able to go back before creation, which sadly we can only do in our imaginations because no one has seen this, but if we would have gone back and we take a glance at the eternal God, we would have seen that Jesus, being the second person of the Trinity, had an intrinsic glory that was the same glory that the Father had and the same glory that the Holy Spirit had and obviously still had. Jesus had a divine glory before creation and before his incarnation. We find this insinuated, at least in Philippians chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you're very welcome. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 7. Very familiar verses to us. And I say it's insinuated because of how um, how Paul is describing Jesus' relationship with the Father here. He says, have this mind also among yourselves which is yours in Christ, Jesus. And Jesus then, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. Jesus is equal to God. And as God has glory, Christ has glory. Simple. In Hebrews chapter 1, we see a reference to this as well. Although the author is obviously establishing the fact that, that Jesus' incarnation was to serve us as a, as a physical, a personal manifestation of the glory of God, Jesus still links this to His eternal nature as the glorious God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. It said, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Christ was present at creation, making Him obviously present before creation. And then those wonderful verses... He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which speaks about his future glory. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Lovely verses. But then we have a an explicit statement of the fact that Jesus Christ had glory in all eternity. In John chapter 5 verse 5. And now Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. cannot get it clearer than that. Now, unless you are a Jehovah's Witness sleeper spy who denies the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are and feel tempted to jump up and disrupt this meeting with a cell phone, that was, that was providential. Grace to you, dear lady. Oh, I'm in trouble. I owe you, I owe you a cup of tea for embarrassing you. No, now you owe me. Done. <laughs> Alright, oh, hold on. Okay, so we all know that, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We know that He is eternally God. And that He now manifests that glory in all eternity as the Son of God. His glory would have had no date stamp on it because Jesus Christ is the non-created being, is God. He wasn't created. Jesus shares in the glory of the Father, and He shares in the glory of the Holy Spirit. And with share, we don't mean He had 33.3% of the glory, and the Father had a 33.3% glory. That's called modalism. He has something, and He has something, and He appears at this time to be the Father, and then He appears that time with His share of the glory. None whatsoever. Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, are one. They're inseparable in their nature, yet separated in their person. So Jesus Christ was present when God eventually created angels. He was present when the the four living creatures, for the first time after they've been created, cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus was visibly seen as the glorious King in all eternity by these created beings and worshipped as such. Now, you and I as humans, we only get to know Christ, really, as the incarnate Son. But the Bible makes it clear that Jesus as God was worshipped and should be worshipped as the glorious Son in all times. Now, Nick and Matt will tell you when angels were created, because I don't know. I just know it was sometime between eternity past and before the creation of human beings. When exactly they know the date, you can ask them. But at that point, Jesus was worshipped and they could see his glory. And angels bowed down before the Son of God before we were even created. And when we get to the end of this age, we shall see again angels and men and women from all tribes, nations and tongues being there in the eternal presence of this glorious Son. And we will all join together doing what? singing about His glory and His praise. Revelation 5. Well, secondly, in the story of Christ's incarnation, there's something expected about His glory that was visible and seen by us. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but, but you have Simeon, the man who holds the baby Christ in his hands, and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to all people of Israel. Then in John chapter 2 verse 11, the first miracle that Jesus performs. And we read, this is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Then you have in Luke chapter 9, verse 28, 29. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up a mountain to pray. We refer to this as the Mount of Transfiguration. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothes became dazzling white. They could see at that point something about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that was not visible to them, even though they walked with him day in and day out. And then in Luke chapter 21, near the end of the gospel, from verse 25, 27, he says, And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations, um, in perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and of the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on this world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man, Coming in a cloud with power and great glory. The same way in which he left. And This brings us now to the surprising side of Christ's glory. The first point we just looked at was the eternal glory that Christ Jesus possesses. We went to a time when time didn't even exist yet. And we try to see with our eyes that which cannot truly be seen. And we try to understand what could not truly be understood. And we formed in our mind this picture of Christ with, with all His glory and angels and four living creatures. And, and all kinds of things worshipping Him because He is the eternal glorious Son in all eternity past. We see in Him already His majesty, His powerful Um, well, His power and His radiant glory is visible. And our minds are up there, and we see this picture of splendor. We see Him almost as James and Peter, and John saw Him there on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's almost like just pure white brightness. And then there's the surprising twist in Christ's glory, as that He, as the God-man, will display now His glory, and He will reveal the glory of His Father in the most unexpected and contradictory way ever. How will He do this? Through humiliation, through suffering, and through death. I find that surprising. In His incarnate state, Jesus did two things. First of all, He revealed His Father's glory. And in His humility, through His obedience... And he's suffering, and he, he glorified the Father. So he revealed the Father's glory to us, but he also glorified the Father in himself. So we have that to deal with now. And this for me really is where the rubber hits the road. I don't know if that's a saying. Jesus had to veil his own divine glory While he was in his incarnate state, he had to hide it. Our Lord had to veil his glory in order to accomplish his mission here on earth. And what is that mission? Well, yes, the mission is to bring in the elect, to unite the elect with himself, and to reconcile us to the Father. But at the heart of the mission of Christ is what? To do the will of my Father. He wanted to please the Father. And by doing the will of his Father in complete obedience, what is he doing? He's bringing glory to his Father. And we will partake in that glory. But more chewing on that stake a little bit later. To see this manifestation of the glory of God in the glorifying of the Father and the Son, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 17. I'm going to spend a little time there. In John 17, as you turn there, we have a recorded prayer of our Lord Jesus. You know this well. Matt mentioned it the other day. It's like this is the Mount Everest of the Gospel of John. When you get there, it is, it is just glory. And in this prayer, the noun glory and the verb to glorify are found about eight times. So This is one of the key uh, concepts in Jesus' prayer. This is what he prays for. And let us read through this prayer. And as we do, I want you to think about the desires of our Lord Jesus Christ as He prays this prayer to the Father. Because Jesus, as the Son, is in a relationship with His Father. And what does this Son, the eternal Son, want to say to His Father at this time in His ministry? Well, we have it recorded for us. So what is at the heart of Jesus' prayer? Read with me. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I am from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in this world. they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scriptures may be fulfilled. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, so sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you send me into the world, So I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. That they, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Firstly, this is a mutual and a reciprocal glorifying that takes place between the Father and the Son. I think we will do good when we start looking at the gospel within the context of the love that exists between the Father and the Son. The Father glorifies the Son. And the Son glorifies the Father. This is the prayer of Christ. Right, are you up this time of the evening for some contextual exegesis? I'm going to ask you a question. Game time. Are you ready? When you look at this passage and the context of this passage in John chapter 17, let me ask you this question. When did Jesus say this? When was this prayer prayed? Right, anyone wants to venture? Otherwise, I'm going to nominate Phil to answer. And he's trembling in his boots. When was John chapter 17 said by the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I won't put anyone on the spot, not even Phil. When is this glorification going to happen? Look at your Bibles, verse 1. The hour has come. The hour has come. It is in that hour the Son glorifying the Father and the Father glorifying the Son. This is about to take place at an hour that according to the Lord Jesus Christ has now come. Now it's time for me to glorify you. Now it's time, Father, for you to glorify me. That hour is the cross. This is part of the upper room Discussion happening between Jesus and his disciples. He's preparing them. And in his preparation, he says, let's close our eyes because I need to speak to my father. And audibly, he prays to his father. And John writes down, it's about the glory of his father. And there at the cross is when Jesus Christ will glorify the father. And the father would look at his son and he would glorify him. We don't often think about the glorification of the Lord Jesus in terms of the cross, do we? We think of that as the humiliation of Christ. For most of us, the picture of glorification is more in line with the Mount of Transfiguration. It's more in line with what we read in the book of Revelation. Him sitting there on the throne together with the Father. The miracles. We think of His post-resurrection body. That's glorification. But not according to the words of Christ. Yes, that is also glorification. Don't miss that. But to Jesus in his prayer is, my glorification is about to happen because I am going to obey my Father even to the point of death on the cross. And in my obedience, I'm screaming out to the world, I love my Father. I obey my Father. I'm glorifying my Father. Look at what I'm about to do. And the Father looks down at the Son and He says, well done. I'm pleased with you, my son. And he says to all of us, listen to him. This concept is already introduced to us in the gospel of John. There in the very beginning. In John chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. We have this picture of Christ's eternal glory. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. And we all say, what a glorious Savior. How wonderful is Jesus? And we should because that verse tells us that's the response. So he starts with a description of Christ's eternal existence, his creative power, his sustaining power, him being life itself. So with our eyes then still fixed on that glorious picture of his majesty, almost taking us there to the tabernacle. You see the Shekinah glory of the cloud, and we see Isaiah there in the year King Uz- uh, Isaiah, in the year King Oziah died, and he's there in the temple, and he sees the glory of God filling the temple. That's our picture of glory. And then John goes from verse 1 to verse 14 that we always read at Christmas. And the word became flesh and dwelled among us. What we might consider less than glorious, we find exactly what God designed for us to behold the glory of God in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now for those of you who know your Bibles well, have I read The whole of verse 14? No. Intentionally. What does the rest of the verse say? And the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and full of truth. You see from the point of the incarnation all the way to the cross is Jesus Being glorified by the Father and Him glorifying the Father in His obedience. It's surprising that God would make us see His glory in His suffering and His humiliation. And yet this is the climax of the glorification of the Son. Jesus knew this and with the hour approaching, He said in John chapter 12 verse 27, He says, now is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Save me from this hour. Save me from this wonderful opportunity that was set already before the world was created. Set so that I can glorify you. Should I now pray, Lord, lead me not into that hour? He says, this is the very purpose why I came to this hour. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So what is it about the cross that would demonstrate for us the glorifying of the Father and of the Son? It is there as we see the Lord Jesus in His obedience to the Father, giving Himself and saying, I'm doing this so that He can be glorified. And in doing so, we will learn, we we will see a manifestation, a visible manifestation of the love of God that you would not have seen that Jesus Christ not come. You'll see a manifestation of the glory of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, the mercy of God. The Son is glorified by the Father, and the Father is glorified by the Son. Now I need to get to a close. I took us through the scope of God's revelation of the glory of His Son in His Word, and we landed on the day before the crucifixion. So I took, obviously, a more biblical theology approach, not a systematic theology. I wanted to take you through the whole story as it is progressively seeing more of the glory of the Lord Jesus. Now, have you ever heard of the Hebrew word pilpul? I learned this in seminary. It is a beautiful Hebrew word. And it describes a way in which the Jewish scholars would study the Talmud. It literally means hair splitting. In other words, what they do is, it is like a critical analysis of the text. They take the Talmud and they go in every single little detail and then they work it out and pull it out. And at the end, they're still busy with it. It is an intense study of every detail. Now, there is a time for pilpuling. But I want to do the exact opposite of pilpuling. And I want to take what we've just... Seen, and I want to lead it to where all theology needs to lead. Theology leads to doxology, to praise, to glory. So, put in your hearts and your minds for a moment the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and allow that glory that you've seen and that I would one more time just lay before you. I pray that that glory will lead you now to worship. You're ready for some imaginative work in your mind. Take you there. Where no one has been because no one was there. So we are in in dangerous territory. Go back to that time before time existed. Look and you will see the eternal Son of God. You will see the Father and you will see the Spirit. Distinct. Get one. Perfectly holy. And they are completely satisfied. Within each person. With each person in the Trinity. The father. Basks in the glory of the son. And the son basks in the glory of the spirit. And and just this. They are happily. Satisfied with each person. Within themselves. Father enjoys. The Son. The Son enjoys the Spirit. And the glory of the Son is enjoyed by the Father and the Spirit. And the glory is just shared. No one else was there to observe this. Or to experience this perfect expression of love and holiness. And the manifestation of God's eternal glory. And then at some point. Before any moments, Because there weren't any. There's no time. The Father and the Son and the Spirit makes this divine covenant with one another. We call it the covenant of redemption or the the eternal decree. Matt mentioned this earlier too. So here's the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And they decide to create. They decide that in this creation, the Son will come at the right time to redeem a people whom will rebel, they will rebel against him. And God will show his grace and his mercy and his love in his son who would one day come to save those whom the father elected and gave to the son. Were you there? No. But I want you to imagine that because that's where the glory of Christ is being manifested in the reality of his incarnation. And then at some point, at that moment, this covenant has been, has been cut the Father will give a people to the Son. The Son in turn will take on the form of man. And He will save a rebellious sinner by giving Himself for the elect. And in doing so, He will glorify His Father. And sometime before these elect were even created, God must have created angels and these living creatures. And put yourself there again. For the first time, there's not only the one God existing in heaven, but there are creatures. Creatures that he made for himself. Job was asked this question, where, w- where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding, Job, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Were you there? Well, we can say we weren't there either. But I want you to imagine that. And with this triune God surrounded by this angelic host, the glory and the praise and the adoration of God's majesty and his holiness were being sung. And there was cries in heaven. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit worthy of such praise and glory by nature of them just being God. Oh, imagine the Praise. Imagine that perfect harmony and pristine glory. Every moment that happened in heaven was just absolute, pure, clean glory. And There in the midst of this pre-creation praise, the Son of God receives that which belongs to Him as the second person of the Trinity. He receives His glory. And then God created man. His own words in Genesis tells us that man was created different, unique. Male and female, he created them. And he created them in his own image. Man would carry with him a certain certain glory that comes from God. And then they fell in sin and rebellion. And and, and in this first post-fall promise is then made. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. So that glorious plan that was made in the covenant of redemption is now starting to work out in creation. That seed is born of a woman. That seed grew up. He learned obedience. But he was all glorious, even though his glory was veiled. And as he's born conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a woman, he lives in humility, obscurity, as a carpenter's son. And while a man, the son's desire is only one thing. He says, my desire is to do the will of my Father. It's for me like food, he said. And that path of that glorification lies before him. And the son, in his loving obedience to the Father's will, walks towards the cross. Oh, and the father looks down at his precious son and he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And the son looks up to the father and he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And we look at the son and we see the glory of the father revealed in wisdom, in love, in grace and mercy. And we behold in Christ the glory of God and we are drawn to him. Because of what we see. And then the son in his final and most spectacular expression of his love for the father. He fulfills his covenant promise to the father. And he takes upon himself our guilt. is punished on our behalf. He made atonement for our sin. And he cries out those words from the cross. It is finished. I've done what my father asked me to do. At that moment, Jesus glorified his father. And at that moment, the father looked upon the son and said, I glorify you in your obedience. It is finished. It is done. On the third day, the father raised the son from the dead. He rose with a glorified body. The same kind of body that you and I will one day inhabit. He rose from the dead and he appeared to his disciples as the glorious King, the King of glory. Luke chapter 24 tells us what is not necessary that the, um, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer first and then enter into his glory? With the work of redemption done, the good news is established, the news that righteousness, that the righteousness of God has now been revealed from glory to glory, faith to faith. Father calls his son home, takes him up in a cloud, and as the disciples stand there on the Mount of Olives, they look up and they see a glorious Savior in his glorified body, taken up to be in the presence of his Father in the glory that he had before he came into this earth, and now he sits there reigning on the right or at the right hand of God the Father from whom he shall return. And here. We are. I pray that the next session will show us how much of that glory of Christ becomes ours, that we will, for all eternity, be in His presence without sin, without any hindrance, and we will see His glory for what it truly is, not veiled, but as it is. And our glorious Lord and King with a name given to Him by the Father. That name that is above every name. That every knee will bow before Him. Every tongue will confess that He is Lord. The praise of His glory will fill the courts of heaven. And it will ring out for all eternity. And it will be coming from your mouth. And then there among the crowd of redeemed souls. There will be a sinner whose name was written in the Lamb's book of life. Once predestined, then called, then justified, then sanctified, now glorified. And that could be you. That could be you. You will stand there and you would look at Christ. And as we spoke here about the gospel, your affections would just overflow in praise. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and power and glory forever and ever. Amen. Enough said. I think amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you in your Son and through your Son for the glory that belongs to your Son and to the Father and to the Holy Spirit. Because there was a time when you spoke to us through Through the prophets. And then came the time when you spoke to us through your son. And in him we beheld. The radiant glory of your nature. In him we see and still see. We saw and still see. That eternal glory that will one day. Be ours to enjoy. God I did mention that passage in the end of the book of Revelation that speak about the Lamb's book of life. There were two books, we know. One were the deeds of men, and according to that you will judge the world in righteousness. And it's only those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life who will receive this glorified body and who would for all eternity experience the bliss and joy of being with you. God, may I ask you by your Holy Spirit to touch the hearts of those who do not know you. Maybe even in this crowd, Father, there's someone or could be who know nothing about the glory of Christ, who know nothing about their guilt before you, who if they were to stand before the judgment seat of God, They have no righteousness to present. Definitely their own won't do. There are those, Father, who have nothing, no experience in sanctification because they're not in Christ. And therefore there will be no glorification for them. For them, the only destiny is the second death where for all eternity they will experience the outpouring of your presence in wrath. Dear Father, I pray that sinners will be be repenting of their sins and come to Christ in faith and hold on to this glorious Savior. Pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will work salvation in their hearts, even tonight. Give them no rest until they come to you. And when they come, they would look back and they will thank you because it is you who draw us to yourself through your Son. Because in him we see the glory of the Father. And the Father is glorified in him. Amen.
1: Well, thank you, Andre, for pointing us to the glory of God and the glorious, our glorious Lord Jesus, our Savior. Thank you. Well, that brings our formal sessions to an end today. I'm sure there'll be many more informal gatherings and uh, meetings happening tonight all over this campus and around the, the community. Uh, thanks so much for being with us today. Just don't forget tomorrow morning, uh, church is here at 9.30 is the start time. Riverbend Bible Church and Simon Pyatt, one of the elders of Riverbend, will be preaching from Acts 4, verse 12 tomorrow morning. And during that session, there'll be communion happening. So, You're welcome to participate in that. And there'll be an offering as well, which will go towards the expenses um, for this weekend for the conference. So that's happening uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, Don't forget uh, your parents to pick up your kids. And if you're interested in writing out some questions, there's a Q&A box out there. And if you want to stick around for the food truck, that's out the back as well. So make the most of that. Have a wonderful evening, and we'll catch you again sometime tomorrow.